I'd invite you to turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 28. Our passage this morning is from verses 10 through 22. I'll read that in a moment from the English Standard Version translation. But I want to begin by uh, giving us some introduction to the story of Jacob before we read this particular passage. But let's pray first. Our God and Father, we ask for your grace, the grace of your Holy Spirit in particular, by which he illuminates our minds to understand the things that are contained in Scripture. Our God and Father, we know that uh, this writing, though written by those that you had chosen to be your prophets and apostles, your historians, your wisdom writers, uh, these men of old, nevertheless, were moved by your Holy Spirit so that the very things that are expressed, the Scripture itself testifies to be the very Word of the living God. And so, Father, uh, by that same Spirit that you caused the Scriptures to come into existence, by that same Spirit, illuminate our hearts and minds in an understanding of your Word, that Scripture would be, this day, a means of working in us uh, what you will, what you desire, with respect to our salvation in Christ, what it is to love you, what it is to care rightly about others, what it is to understand who we are, to understand why we are, how to live in a way that's pleasing to you. We would pray this, Father, so that uh, in our daily lives we might be salt and we might be light to a broken and lost world that exists around us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're looking into the story of uh, Jacob this morning. And so we have to begin with some background. So first of all, let's ask the question, who is Jacob? Well, Jacob is the grandson of Abraham. He's the son of Isaac. He happens to be a twin. His brother is Esau. And Jacob is the younger brother by just, you know, spare moments. And so we're in line with the, the story of Abraham, which you often hear, the story of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the three great patriarchs. Now, what we learn about these brothers in the previous chapters is that they're quite opposite to one another. Um, Esau uh, is his father's favorite. Uh, Jacob is his mother's favorite. And that kind of favoritism we can read into the story uh, is much of the reason why, most likely, that they grow up uh, far more as adversaries than they do as friends or brothers who uh, are so close to each other. In fact, we can read this in Genesis chapter 25, a couple of verses, 27, 28. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man, dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Great family dynamics. So we come now to the point in the story where out of the mess of these family dynamics, uh, Jacob has twice taken from Esau the things that were most 
valued in the ancient world within the family tree. Jacob has taken Esau's birthright blessing as the firstborn. He's taken his birthright. And then, through a, a chicanery of the worst sorts, has uh, gotten his brother's fatherly blessing, the second greatest thing that Esau could possibly want, swindled his brother out of it so that now uh, Jacob has become the hated adversary of his brother Esau. And Esau wants to take his brother's life. Esau hates his brother. So because of this danger, Jacob's parents, Isaac and Rebekah, send Jacob away, uh, back to the family, back to Mesopotamia, back to Haran, uh, more than 500 miles distant. So we begin reading the scripture. Jacob is on his journey. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of that place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed. And behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring." Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I've done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke, awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar, and poured oil on the top of it. He called the name of the place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at the first. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me, and will keep me in this way that I go, and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And the stone which I've set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I shall give a full tenth to you. Now, I want to sum up at the beginning uh, the meaning of this story theologically. That is, the meaning of the story with respect to the story of Scripture, the story of salvation. And this is what it is. 
in spite of Jacob's unworthiness, God is mercifully kind to him, demonstrating that God is the God of grace. Now, that truth concerning Jacob and his story applies also likewise to us. So its meaning specifically for us is this, that in spite of our unworthiness, God has been mercifully kind to us in our salvation in Christ. We, who are so undeserving in every way, so that it demonstrates ultimately that the God who has saved us is a God of all grace. This is a salvation story. This is a story, though, that ultimately reveals the grace of God in Christ. Now, in terms of looking at the story, we can say that there are three very, very significant parts to it. Two that are clearly in the text, and one which the latter part of Scripture tells us we must read there as well within the text. The New Testament illuminating the Old Testament. Reading the Old Testament from the standpoint of how Jesus taught his apostles, to read the Old Testament. And so, first of all, we can see Jacob's journey. We can understand that the journey here is significant. Secondly, we see Jacob's dream. But then thirdly, we see Jacob's ladder and the connection that Jesus makes of himself to that ladder. So those three parts. The journey, the dream, and the latter. Now, let's begin then with, with Joseph's journey. And, and I want us to appreciate that in this journey we can actually find universal themes. Now, what do we mean by universal themes? A universal theme is when Scripture states something going on here that isn't unique to that kind of person in that kind of place in that kind of culture. But it actually reflects, as God's design of all of Scripture is, it actually reflects a much greater picture of things, a universal picture of things, a universal theme, themes that are still current, themes that are still uh, recognizable in how we live life today. We see this in Jacob's journey, which then gives us the ability to identify personally with Jacob's journey. Now, that journey has two dimensions. It has a horizontal dimension which is all that Jacob is really concerned about. But it has a vertical dimension, which is God's own intervention into Jacob's life. Now, what's going on in Jacob's journey? What's going on in terms of what he's focused upon? Well, it's very horizontal. In the first place, Jacob is seeking a wife. Uh, Isaac, his father, does not want him to take a Canaanite woman. And the primary reason there is not scarcity. Uh, there's plenty of Canaanite women who would love to be married into this family because Isaac is extremely wealthy at this point. So, I mean, lots of pagan Canaanitish women would love to have married into this wealthy family. But that's the issue. They were, in fact, pagan women. And that's the very thing that God does not want Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in this family tree that he's developing in accordance with his promise. That's the very thing that he doesn't want to have happen because already in the history from Adam all the way to Abraham, we have seen the influence of the seed of the serpent compromising the seed of the woman. 
We've seen again and again that the pagan kinds of things that Satan has been able to bring into the history of the human race will confound and confuse and then actually cripple the line of God, the godly line, the line of the seed that carries the seed of the woman promise again and again. That's the primary reason Isaac is opposed to this. It's not a matter of ethnicity. It is a religious, spiritual concern. These nations that he doesn't want his son to marry into do kinds of things which 500 years in the future is going to bring the most devastating kind of earthly judgment. When God gives this land to the nation of Israel and requires his people to depopulate this area that this sin of the Amorites that has become full can be fully judged. Now, so what is, what is, what's happening here? So Jacob is leaving Beersheba. He's got a 500-mile trek. He's going to average about 20 miles a day. Uh, he's got at least 25 to 30 days of travel. He's on foot. He's making this journey by himself. And what is he doing? Well, he's seeking a wife. Seeking a wife. Now, that's a universal kind of theme, if you think about it. Uh, it's, it's the thing that's going on today. People uh, all around us are seeking a life partner, seeking a spouse, seeking someone that they can happily spend their life with. I mean, that's one of the biggest motivating factors in all of human life. Uh, as I was reading this and thinking about it, I thought about mail-order brides. Seven brides for seven brothers? Wasn't that one of the musicals? But then I thought about the Old West, so I did a little bit of reading about it, and here's how it worked. Uh, the men out in the West, where women were scarce, would send written ads back to Eastern newspapers. And so uh, in the Eastern newspapers, uh, these men would describe themselves, and uh, eligible women would enter into a correspondence with them. Because with this mass exodus of men from the East, there was a deficit of men eligible for women to marry. So when a woman hit about the age of 22, danger of being an old spinster, she wanted to make sure that this wouldn't happen to her. So maybe out of a bit of desperation, maybe because she didn't find anyone good enough for her, she would respond to these ads. A correspondence would develop. They'd, they'd write over a period of time. And then this woman, having never met this guy personally, only through letters, would go west hundreds, even thousands of miles to find this person in this place where, you know, she had established this correspondence. Hmm. What does that sound like today? Online dating. Someone on the West Coast entering into a correspondence with someone on the East Coast. But he's going there rather than she coming here. Yeah. Civilization back there, the frontier out here. Anyway, the, it's, it's a universal theme. The fact that you see it in the Old West, the fact that we have all this online dating stuff today, it's a desire that we can recognize as so human and so real, which is a confidence builder in us that Scripture knows what human beings are like. But there is a far more serious reason, or let's say another reason that is as important or even more important for Jacob's safety, 
and that is Jacob's journey involves a flight, a run, an escape from the consequences of things which Jacob had done. Now, you ought to have a little bit of sympathy for Esau's feelings in all of this. Not sympathy necessarily with the fact that the hatred in Esau's heart has risen to the point of premeditating about murder. No. But nevertheless, you ought to recognize that Jacob is the real scoundrel in this story. He has deceived his brother. He schemed against his brother. He's been treacherous against his brother, all for the sake of something that we might look at as essentially worldly gain. Uh, I want my older brother's rights as the firstborn, I want my older brother's rights to my father's blessing, and he schemed and he got them. And his brother is exceptionally broken and angry over this, and Jacob is the scoundrel running from the consequences of what he's done. Now, again, here is a universal theme. Uh, we find that many of the journeys that people are on in life are a flight from the things which they have done that did not turn out so well. Where they've messed up. Where they've done wrong. And the only way they can look at this is, I've got to get out of this mess. I've got to get out of this situation. I've got to flee. Sometimes that flight involves the flight that is motivated by a deep sense of guilt. I'm burdened in my conscience because I've messed things up and I have no clue how to fix it. And the only flight I can think of, the only answer I can think of, is escape, to run. To, to, to remove myself from the situation. And that removal often means going in directions, well, always means going in directions that are not good. It never means when you're fleeing from where you have done moral wrong and your unwillingness to face it, that flight is always disastrous. It never, ever brings about any moral good. It doesn't. But Jacob shows no indication that he's running because he feels guilty. So there's a second kind of flight. It's the flight to escape the consequences, simply the consequences of the things that we have done wrong. That's Jacob's story. He's not running away because he's feeling guilty about what he's done to his brother. He's just recognized, because his parents have seen it faster than he has, he's recognized the fact that he's placed himself in, into clear and present danger by what he's done to his brother. So he's, he's fleeing because what he's done has consequences that he doesn't have the capability of dealing with, and so the best thing is to get out of town as fast as he can. He's not running 
To save his soul, he's running to save his life. And when people flee in order to save their lives, but with no sense about their souls, we recognize that the bad they've done has not pierced into their conscience and into their heart in any way. Or to put it this way, Jacob has an incredibly broken moral compass. It doesn't point toward what is right. It points toward what is safe for himself. An incredibly broken moral compass. Now, that's the horizontal that's going on in Jacob's journey. And, and we as human beings can often relate to those things. We often can see them in our own lives. But there's a second dimension to Jacob's journey that Jacob isn't even aware of. It's the vertical dimension. It's the perspective of God. It's what God is actually doing. Now, we don't see this unless we go back to the earlier part of the chapter, chapter 28, and look at what Isaac says as a blessing for his son Jacob as Jacob goes on this journey. And so back in chapter 28, in the first few verses, we read this. Verse 4, verse 3, verse 4. God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may become a company of peoples. May he give you the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you so that you may take possession of the land of your sojourning that God gave to Abraham. So, so Isaac has this vertical perspective on his son's life. He has this, this larger vision. <clears throat> he knows his son is uh, in danger. So there's that reason for sending him away. He knows his son needs a wife. There's that reason for sending him away. But he sees his son's life as being directly connected to the Abrahamic promise, the Abrahamic covenant, which we know ultimately is about Christ. It's ultimately about the Savior. It is ultimately about the seed of the woman who comes into the world to crush the serpent's head. So even though Isaac wants to <clears throat> get his son quickly away, the deepest reason in Isaac's own heart, the deepest reason in Isaac's own faith is his concern for Jacob's place in the covenant that God has established. And so what he blesses his son with is that God would be with him, that God would do in Jacob's life all that God has promised to do for Abraham and for Isaac, that Isaac would flourish in all the things that pertain to God and all the things that pertain to God's covenant blessing with respect to the world. So, Isaac's perspective reflects the vertical of what God is actually doing because God intends to fulfill his covenant purposes. Now, I want you to think about how these themes, these ideas, relate to us. The story presents a challenge. And the challenge is this. What are you preoccupied with? Is it the horizontal? Is it life as you see it this way? Is that your constant 
focus? I mean, maybe you're not running like Jacob was running. Uh, and, and the things, one of the things he was running for is perfectly legitimate. And the other reason he was running was to remove himself from his moral responsibilities in life. But either one of those, whether it's a wrong reason for your journey or a right reason for your journey, we can, in fact, find ourselves completely focused upon this life, life in the horizontal, as opposed to life in the vertical. That's the question the story raises. We ought not to forget that Jesus addressed his own disciples in this way in the Sermon on the Mount when he said, you know, you are worried about what you shall eat and what you shall drink and what you shall wear. You're worried about all these things that the Gentiles so eagerly go after. And his word to them was, but you, seek first the kingdom of God and its righteousness, and all of these things will be added unto you. Jesus told his disciples, if you're not focused upon the vertical, then you're going to live your life no differently than the pagans. As Christians, if you're not ultimately focused first on the kingdom, God's purposes for your life, then you will live your life no differently than the pagans do. Now, the second part of the story is the dream that Jacob has. Uh, and we see this in verses 12 through 15. And we note that this is no ordinary dream. You wonder, put your head on a rock to go to sleep, and you might have strange dreams. I don't get this. I've read, you know, a half dozen different commentators on what's going on here. And I don't get it. I don't get a pillow that then becomes a pillar. I don't get it. But the story, uh, I mean, okay, so I'm thinking maybe he put his cloak on top of the stone, right? Something to make it softer than being rock hard. Nevertheless, this is an occasion in which he has this incredible dream, and this dream uh, is actually an event of divine revelation, that God is, in fact, communicating to Jacob. Now, What's extraordinary about this? Not just the content of the dream, but the fact that Jacob would receive this dream is extraordinary. Jacob, at this point in his life, is not a good man. Jacob, at this point in his life, is not a godly man. And Jacob, on his journey, is not seeking the salvation of his soul. He's seeking the safety of his life. In every way, Jacob is not seeking the things of God at all. Doesn't this really strike you as incredible? That God would intercept such a human being and give him one of the most amazing revelations of himself that we find in all of the Old Testament. A man who up to this point has given nothing of an indication or evidence in his life that he desires to live for the things above. Nothing. So, 
the dream is extraordinary because it points out that God is the God who saves. And God doesn't save good people. God doesn't save the law-abiding. God doesn't save people who can say, I scarcely have any sin in my life at all. God saves people who are so broken, who so need to be saved. And because it's God who does this, because there's no merit in Jacob at all, this dream and God's intervention is a dynamic testimony to the God who is the God of all grace. So we read the dream again, and it goes like this. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south, and in you and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Now, there are three parts to this dream. There's the ladder. Now, the word ladder here can also mean staircase. And in some sense, that's a better picture because if you've got all these angels going up and down a ladder visually that, oh, they might get in each other's way. But if you think of a staircase, a staircase reaching up into heaven, then angels going up and down on a staircase visually makes a whole lot of sense. So the word means either. But what is certain is this about it. God is revealing that there really are two worlds. There's this world and there's another world. There's the world that we live in and there's the world that the angels themselves dwell in and they travel back and forth between heaven and earth. And that there is a connection between that world and this world and that connection is this divine ladder, this divine staircase that God reveals to Jacob. Now, more than just a belief that there's this other world, which Jacob and everybody in the ancient world believed there were two worlds. They believed this. But here is the point that God is revealing to Jacob. This other world is ultimately connected not to the gods, but to the one, the living and true God. Because you see, in paganism, uh, they believed in this other world, and they believed that there were bridges to this other world, and these bridges to this other world was through all the occultism and magic involved in paganism, idolatry and such. This is the very stuff that God taught his people to reject, and Isaac is being revealed the truth that God has his stairway. God has his activity in his angelic beings from heaven to earth and from earth to heaven that this is the way and the only way between these two worlds. And then secondly, there's God's angels, which simply means in the Hebrew, messengers of God. Uh, they ascend to heaven, they come back down to earth. 
They are indications of God's sovereign care over his people. Psalm 103, verses 20 and 21, we have the psalmist praying this way, Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all you hosts, his ministers who do his will. So these angels are the messengers of God going back and forth between earth, doing the will of God. And the Jews understood, like we read in the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, that all of these angels were ministering spirits sent out for the sake of those who were going to inherit salvation. So what God is revealing to Jacob at this point is that, yes, these angels go back and forth and their presence and activity in the world is on behalf of God's covenant people. But the third part of this dream is where God renews his covenant that he's already made with Abraham and Isaac. Just as God promised to Abraham and to Isaac, God makes the same promises to Jacob that he will have offspring that are too numerous to count. He's going to have this great land and ultimately that God promises to be his God. God's presence will go with Jacob. Jacob will be in everything that God is doing. So the meaning. Well, the meaning comes back again to an understanding that the story is about unmerited grace in God's kindness, he is merciful and gracious to undeserving sinners. This story shows the abundance of his grace. He manifests his mercy to those who actually live debauched lives. God shows his mercy to whom he chooses to show his mercy, like he does for Jacob, even to people who are worshipers of idols, even even as we in our day and age worship our own idols. God is a merciful and gracious God. Now we see Jacob's response in verses 16 to the end of the chapter. Jacob wakes up. He has a profound recognition of the presence of God with him, which takes Jacob, moves Jacob, into a serious, God-centered commitment. Jacob says, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I didn't know it. How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. So that profound recognition of the very presence of God in that place prompts Jacob to call it Bethel, which means the house of God, and to say this is, this is the gate of of heaven. But besides the verbal responses, Jacob then does three concrete things. He erects the pillow into a pillar and he anoints it, basically saying, this place is consecrated. This place where I have met God is holy ground. And then he names the place Bethel, the house of God. God is dwelling in this place. And then he makes the vow. God, if your covenant promises are faithful to me, I, in response, will be faithful to them in every way. Now, the big lesson is this. 
God's grace, which brings an unworthy human being to the knowledge of the truth by God's acts of mercy, where God reveals himself, brings about conversion. What changed Jacob's life? God. God's actions. God's intervention in Jacob's life. God's mercy. But then the mark of a true conversion is turning Godward and turning Godward in terms of a serious commitment to God. True conversion, where your concerns are no longer only horizontal, but your concerns are now with the vertical dimension of life. The dimension of life in which God is ultimate and God is the center and God has his purposes for us. That's what true conversion brings about. Finally then, Jacob and Jesus. Jacob's ladder and Jesus. We read at the beginning of the service, John chapter 1, verses 43 to 51. I'm going to the last verse in terms of what Jesus says to Nathanael, verse 51 of John 1. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you shall see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Every Jew would have recognized what Jesus was claiming. You're claiming to be Jacob's ladder. You're claiming that what Jacob saw in his dream was actually a visionary picture of you, Jesus. The person and work of Jesus is what this ladder is all about. Christ is the ladder. Christ is the staircase to heaven. Christ is the one, as Matthew Henry said, who has anchored himself by his human nature into this world, who has anchored himself into heaven by virtue of his divine nature. The latter itself represents everything that God has done in Christ. Jesus is the mediator between heaven and earth. And every good and perfect gift that comes from the Father of lights, in whom there is no shadow or variation of change, everything comes to this world through Christ. Christ is that connection between that world and this world. So Jesus is Bethel, the house of God. Jesus is the gate of heaven. Or as Jesus himself said, I am the way. Christ is the way. All of God's grace, all of God's favor, all of God's mercies come down to us through Christ. And all of our service and all of our prayers and all of our worship ascend to God through Christ. If God dwells with us, if we dwell with God, it is through Christ. If we are to arrive in heaven when we die, it is in and through Christ and what Christ has done to save our souls. 
So in terms of living this life, we should live, we're called to live, the way of Christ, the way of God-given grace. To remember, God has saved us, not because we're lovable, not because we're worthy, not because we've deserved it. And if God loved us when we were sinful, God will never stop loving us, ever. The way of Christ means this. Your life and your story are part of the great and eternally significant story of Christ. The latter, from heaven to earth, anchored in Jacob's life. That same ladder is anchored into your life. Christ is your way to the Father. Christ is your staircase to heaven. But the angels of God ascend and descend. Christ is also the very thing that takes your horizontal story and gives it everlasting and eternal significance. You are part of the story of what God is doing in human history to redeem people. So what does this mean? Your life has purpose. Not because you can discover it, but because God has ordained it to be so. God anchored Christ into your life. You didn't find this. You didn't discover this. You didn't make this up. You didn't cause it to happen. God sovereignly caused this to happen. And therefore, your life has meaning and your life has significance and your life has purpose every single day. Which is why Jesus said to his disciples, Take no thought for all these things that are horizontal that the Gentiles so eagerly run after. But seek first the kingdom and its righteousness. And all of these things, these horizontal things, will be taken care of for you. Amen. Our God and Father, Help us, help us to never forget your great unmerited grace and help us to know you've anchored us into the story of Christ that we might live for him, for his glory, for his goodness, and for our everlasting good. In Jesus' name, amen.